This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Heard every Saturday morning at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome, friend, to our weekly garden party. We hope you brought along your questions because it's time to dish the dirt. On The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, good morning. The sous chef of the garden, Frank Proctor here. And located several hundred kilometers away in her wonderful new home in Prince Edward County is the Countess of the County, Charlie Dobbin. Good morning, Charlie. I love it. Countess of the County. I'm going to remember that How one. How about that? <laughs> you, the things you come up with. I'm telling you, Frank. Um, well... well it's true. You're just a, such a pun master. So, hey, listen, uh, remind folks that since we're recording this show in advance, uh, we please don't call. Put your phones down. But, of course, you can send email. Oh, hmm. Just took away <laughs> one of the only jobs I have. No, just kidding. Yeah, I'll, I'll repeat the, uh, the email that folks should send a little bit later on to you, Charlie. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile... Uh, we have a slew of uh, emails already, I think, that folks have sent you, right? We sure do. Uh, some of them, you don't even know this, but some of them I'm actually answering directly back to the sender just because sometimes these e- emails I don't think will translate so well to radio. Um, I like it a lot when people send photographs because it, it you know clarifies issues, uh, but sometimes it just seems better to not go to radio and just directly respond. So I've been busy. And, um, what have you been up to? Well, you know, remember I, I dug up a bunch of plants out of my garden in Richmond Hill before we moved last summer, and I buried them all for the winter in uh, down under the ground in my back 40. So I finally went out and I dug them out of the trench where they had spent the winter, and I'm proud to say that I think we've got a very, very good survival rate on uh, a bunch of perennials, a couple of shrubs, a few roses, uh, a real mishmash of stuff that I was able to haul out of the garden in the heat of the summer last last year. I don't know whether you caught, uh, caught the article, uh, by the way, of uh, Heather Malik in the Toronto Star yesterday mm-hmm. uh, about uh, the fact that the Ontario government has kind of closed down the whole industry of uh, gardening. And, you know, uh, it's it's a huge, oh, huge industry. Yeah. Uh, she's saying in their article here that stores and landscapers are praying that mm-hmm. the province will change their mind and designate the entire industry as essential. Right. Uh, flower greenhouses uh, are rated safe. And uh, I just wanted your thoughts on that. Oh, well, there's no question, Frank. I mean, I spent years and years in retail, and I've certainly worked as a consultant for years as well. Uh, this is it. This is the season. I mean, if if the the industry, the entire horticultural landscape, construction, uh, garden center industry misses the next month or so, they're toast. That's, this is it. This is, this is when you make your money. You work all winter for the crazy, crazy days of spring and early summer. And if the stores can't be open and they can't sell all the beautiful plants they've been growing, the plants are compost. Uh, the people are likely bankrupt. A lot of these are small family businesses. Uh, and there's been fewer and fewer of the smaller independent garden centers over the years because the big box stores have kind of taken over the business and they're not going to go bankrupt right. anytime soon. But it's a, it's a real 
real worry for the individuals, the small business owners. And um, absolutely, I I'm absolutely agree with Heather all the way. And I hope the province recognizes how important that the business is. Well, that's super. Hey, and just, to, oh, you know, the, oh, sorry to interrupt. I was just, yeah, and oh. it's not just an economic thing. I mean, it, obviously economics is part of it, but it's, it's partially because plants are so important that, I mean, what they do for us, for our psychology, for our happiness, for our morale, for our, our sense of creativity, for, for so much, you know, just, you know, so much anxiety is dispelled when we get our hands in the dirt. It's a very, very important industry. Right. Uh, there was another wonderful article I was reading yesterday that pointed out that because everybody's staying inside social distancing, the animals are venturing out much more than normal. Yeah. Uh, beavers spotted near the Don River, uh, white-tailed deer and crothers with that sort of thing. How about the wildlife in your area? Well, I don't think they're noticing the social distancing out here so much. I think, <laughs> if anything, they're probably feeling a little encroached upon by people like us because we're in a brand new home that was farmer's field not that long ago a hay field so uh but no we've got some very fun neighbors keeping our eyes peeled for deer for fox uh and now we've even the pond just at the corner has swans nesting and then very close by geese nesting and so there's a turf war going on there constantly which is super fun to watch Oh, good. Did you get the picture that I sent you of me feeding the, the daddy swan on our pond? I did. What a nature boy you are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the uh, the little designation you'd given me, Sir Francis of Assisi. Uh, that's really wonderful. I, I appreciate that. Actually, you know, it's fascinating that, that we have these, these swans that come here every year, and uh, they usually provide us with, uh, oh, maybe up to five six signets mm. and uh, the gestation period or the incubation period for the trumpeter swan is approximately 34 days charlie mm. so very shortly we should see mama and daddy parade their new little signets in front of us ah looking forward to that well i'll certainly report back on how many little signets come out of our nest yeah good stuff good stuff now we have a special guest uh, looking forward to uh, a special guest coming up in the next segment of the show. <laughs> and, and how handy is that? We've got Joel in charge of our technology in his Airbnb in downtown Toronto. And he just happens to have a lovely daughter named Emmy, who I understand would like to ask a question. Well, we'll get to that in just a couple of moments. Uh, here on the next segment of the show. But just a reminder that you are listening indeed to The Garden Show from Zuma Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Charlie and I and Emmy will return in just moments here on Zuma Radio. Fur and feathers and bugs of all size. There's more going on in the garden than you realize. Should small creatures become a big problem, then you've got The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Exclusively on Zuma Radio. Well, here we are back in The Garden Show for Charlie Dobbin in Prince Edward County. I'm here on the farm out in the north part of Stouffville. And Joel and... His lovely daughter, Emmy, is uh, somewhere in downtown Toronto. Good morning, all. Good morning. Emmy, are you there? Uh-huh. Excellent. Welcome to the Garden Show. Thank you. Oh, by the way, belated happy birthday. I understand that as this program airs, you are now eight years old. Uh-huh. That's oh. terrific. And I was just being glad there is no video on this, but we probably could use some. <laughs> I'm still in my pajamas. <laughs> so am I. 
You got those furry bunny slippers on, Emmy? <laughs> I actually do not. <laughs> uh, okay, so what's going on there? You want to ask a question about the, about gardening? Uh-huh. Okay. What's, what would you like to ask? I'm wondering, why do plants need water and sunlight to grow? What a great question. You know, you would make a good student for me because that's exactly what I teach, is why do plants need water and sunlight to grow? So what you might not realize, because a lot of people don't realize this, is that everything starts with the plants. Um, plants do it all. They, they convert the sunlight, which is a form of energy, into sugar and starch that we eat, that we cook with, that we make our clothes from, that we burn as fossil fuels, that other animals eat, and then we eat those animals. It all starts with the plants. So plants convert the energy of the sun and use water and uh, um, carbon dioxide at the same time to photosynthesize. And at the other end of that equation comes oxygen, which of course we need to, to breathe, and all those lovely sugars and starches that we use for eating and, like I said, cooking and wearing and burning and everything else. So plants, it all starts with the plants, and plants photosynthesize. They're the only ones that can do that. There you go. Hey, I hope that all makes sense. <laughs> it does to me. It does. <laughs> It does. Hey, Good to hear. that is great. <laughs> Emmy, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. It's, it's delightful yeah. to, uh, to, number one, meet you and to have your input for the show, too. Thank you. Might have to make you a regular, Emmy, see if you can come up with another question for next week. <laughs> good good idea. Okay, maybe, maybe we can uh, move along now to some of the emails that you have received. And boy, yeah. what a scat yes. of uh, emails you've got. I've got one here uh, right, Good word. right off the top from Eileen Perry. Uh, she says, hi, Charlie mm -hmm. and Frank. I have a calancho plant since uh, Christmas of 2018. It had a white flower on it when I bought it. And since the flowers died, it hasn't flowered again. It's very healthy looking and has grown quite a bit. I had to repot it as it kept toppling over. What can I do to ensure it will flower again? I have it in a southeast window. And thanks for continuing to do the show. Eileen in Newcastle, Ontario, by the way. Yeah, good question. And you know what, Frank, you won't remember this, but years ago, you gave me a Calancho yes, plant. Uh, it was yep. red. And you gave it to me, I think, around my birthday, and so in the spring. And it was an, a very amazing plant. It just actually bloomed the entire summer. It never stopped sitting outside uh, my house. Now, inside the house is a little different. So Calancho, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, is spelled with a K. So K-A-L-A-N-C-H-O-E. And that it's a succulent leaves, shiny green, thick leaves, and really bright cheerful flowers come in every color of the rainbow except blue and so and something you'll see in the grocery store throughout the winter usually they do bloom naturally in the spring because naturally in in the wild where they originally came from they need um they're what we call a photoperiodic plant so they respond to day length and night the length of dark hours of dark uh, what they need is winter lighting in order to set their flower buds. So what is winter lighting? Well, they need 14 hours of dark and 10 hours of bright light every 24 hours. 
So in your home, it's similar. We do this with poinsettias in this, in the fall. And we can do this at any time with the, with the calanchos is cover them with a cardboard box overnight with give them that 14 hours of dark, stick them in a closet. Just remember to take them out during the day. Make sure that the plant goes into a bright, bright spot in the, in the daytime. You know, sunny windowsill is good. Southern, southeastern is fine. During that six weeks of going in and out of the light and the dark, no water, no fertilizer, just in and out of the dark, 10 hours of light, 14 hours of dark. And what'll happen is you'll be watching the plant. It'll set some flower buds through this process. And once it starts, then you stop the process of light and dark. Just leave it on the window ledge, start watering and fertilizing regularly and enjoy lots of flowers. All righty. Good stuff. I have an interesting question here for you, Charlie, from Sonia Bolton, uh, shrubs Mm -hmm. versus black walnut tree. She says, hello, Charlie and Frank. Uh, it's I'm a first time caller or writer. Oh darn! And my bell is at the station. <laughs> ah, dear. Oh yeah. damn! <laughs> yeah, you need to get some like, spoons. I, spoons or I'll something. I'll have a right? I'll have a gong or something next week. Okay. But she's <laughs> she says I've been listening to and enjoying your show for close to two years now, and I'd like to plant one or two new shrubs in my front garden, but I have to contend with my neighbors black walnut tree. Now, it's a beautiful shade tree, some 50 to 60 years old, but it is my gardening nemesis. The tree is actually on the property line in the rear yard, and the roots do not reach the front yard because of where my patio and my neighbor's driveway are, but because of the height of the tree, we often end up with a lot of leaf debris in the front garden, and I can't be sure that I've cleaned it all up, so I need the plants there to be uh, tolerant. What do you? Oh, the location of the shrubs. Maybe I should say this would be in the northeast corner of the house. It gets lots of sun first thing in spring, but when the leaves come out on the honey locust tree in the front yard, that corner is partially shaded throughout the summer and fall. Any suggestions would be very much appreciated. Thank you, Sonia, Kingston, Ontario. Wow, good question. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if you know this, Frank, but. Walnuts are one of those trees that people love to hate. So it is a native plant. Uh, they do obviously grow walnuts, and that's where walnuts come from, are these big old trees. And I say big and old because the best walnuts are big and old. They were planted very specifically by farmers uh, for their grandchildren's inheritance. Because a well-grown walnut tree is worth thousands and thousands of dollars in the cabinet making industry. And, but they don't, they, when I say well-grown, I mean straight trunk, no knots, uh, no branches, like well-maintained to grow as a tall, you know, tall straight plant. And, you know, 50, 60 years later, they would cut them down and send them off to the, to the sawmills. However, in the, a more urban environment, we have these walnuts that are maybe left over from an old farmer's field. And walnuts exude something called juglone from their roots. So juglone is a chemical that makes the environment very unfriendly for other plants. <clears throat> so we call walnuts, <clears throat> excuse me, narcissistic plants. Like they just want to own, they want to own the whole space. However, there are some plants that can be tolerant of walnuts. Most of them tend to be native shrubs because again, as I mentioned, walnut trees are a native tree. And so there is a bit of a symbiotic relationship with some of the native shrubs. A couple I would recommend to Sonia, kind of depending on the space she's got, 
available. One I love is elderberry. Elderberry do well in sun and a bit of shade. And of course, grow berries. Nanny berry, which is a form of viburnum, excellent shrub, again, a native. And then um, a couple more that, that are maybe better known and not known so much for their nativeness are honeysuckle and rose of Sharon. So all of these shrubs will bloom. Um, all of them, except the rose of Sharon, set um, berries, which of course supports the wildlife. And most of us love Rose of Sharon because they bloom late in the, in the summer. So they, they change up our gardens. Uh, and it's, assuming she's got enough, uh, got enough light, uh, at least five, six hours of direct sunlight, a Rose of Sharon will probably do just fine uh, as, a, as, a, as a plant that can be tolerant of the jug loan that the walnut is sharing with the entire environment. Okay. You know, that question actually brought me back to my early 30s when I, at that point in time, owned 15 and a half acres of property out in the Goodwood area, and I had tried to grow uh, some black walnut trees, but snowmobilers came through and ran them over, uh, so that, that was the end of that, but yeah, yeah. Uh, son of a gun. I was, I was rich for a moment, anyway. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> yeah, we have to take our next little break right about now, so we'll come back, uh, Charlie Dobbin, of course, here on The Garden Show from Zuma Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Daffodils and daisies, bluebells and begonias, forsythia and foxgloves, marigolds, magnolia, lavender and lupins, dahlias, delphiniums, stalks, fox, hollyhocks, tulips and sweet williams. You've picked the right place for everything floral. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, you are listening to The Garden Show from Zoomer Radio, AM 740, 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Charlie Dobbin, of course, in Prince Edward County, answering emails because of the COVID-19 situation. We are not in studio, so we're not taking phone calls. But can I remind you right now that we would welcome your emails. Please send a question to Charlie Dobbin at C. Dobbin, that's D O B B I N, at mzmedia.com. Charlie, uh, let's uh, turn to a, a next email here. This one, Maxine Borovoy says, um, Hi, Charlie, we have uh, two very healthy orchids. Now, one has just recently flowered, the other plant has developed the flower buds, but they appear as though the buds have stopped growing and have not opened into flowers. Also, when we do get flowers, they don't usually last a long time. Regards, Peter and Maxine Borovoy. So there you go. Yeah, orchid questions. Can you answer this one, Frank? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know me. <laughs> oh, come on. Um, all right, so the, the trick with orchids, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I'm assuming that um, Peter and Maxine are growing what are called Phalaenopsis orchids. They're the very common ones now for sale in garden centers and Costco's and grocery stores. So moth orchid is another um, common name for, for the orchids that they're likely growing. Well, buds will form, but in order for those buds to open, there's a few things that have to be absolutely perfect. Number one, the light has to be perfect. So lighting for that kind of an orchid is 
an eastern window or a northern window, or if it's a hot, sunny location like a western or southern window, the plant has to be a good five to 10 feet away from the window. So lighting is super important um, to not only form the buds, but to have the buds open. And then you've got the humidity versus watering going on. So orchids like high humidity. The more humid you can make it, the better it is, uh, which is not to say you want them to have them sitting in water, but you want the air around them to be as full of moisture as possible. You do want to water thoroughly when you water. One of my favorite ways of watering this kind of an orchid is to plunge the entire plant into a pail of room temperature water, uh, you know, leaves, um, pot, everything underwater, uh, and just do a real thorough watering and then a thorough draining of that water into the sink or whatever, and then back into its windowsill. Uh, and the third important thing when it comes to these orchids is avoid drafts. So typically near our windows, we have those hot air vents from our furnaces or air conditioners, as the case may be, blowing right at the window. Get yourself vent deflectors. So you're deflecting those those drafts away from the plants, uh, deflect along the floor or just a, away from where the plants are growing. And they will do much better and be much happier with no drafts, as high humidity as possible and perfect lighting. All righty. That from a person who normally can kill off orchids better than almost anybody else. Uh, all right. I, know, I, always, I always say I've never met an orchid I couldn't kill. <laughs> right. here's, here's a note, Charlie, from Cheryl Mosco. Uh, she says, I'm putting in a vegetable garden for the first time in many, many years. I plan on expanding it using pots, mainly for tomatoes. Now, I've recently discovered these smart pots or cloth pots. I'm not sure if that's the right way to go. Any thoughts? Uh, you know what? Cloth pots are fairly new. I don't know, you, don't know if you've seen these or not, Frank. So uh, many of us do container gardening just because we have no option. We're, we only have a balcony or a rooftop, or we love having our plants in containers because we can bring them to a very workable height, having them up on tables and, and ledges. Uh, so the cloth pots are a very flexible form of pot. They're made out of, it's almost like felt, though it's, it, well, I guess it's very, very similar to felt that these pots are made out of. And, um, and then the question is, you know, how do they work for growing? Well, guess what? They work really, really, really well. Uh, if you can get your hands on cloth pots, I would highly recommend using them. And why is that? Well, number one, just like any, any container garden, we put potting soil or a soilless mix into the cloth pot, just like we would into a plastic pot. And we plant our pots or plants into the, uh, these, these felt bags that are full of moist soil. They drain amazingly well. So there's no issues with overwatering or soggy soil because you've got drainage from the bottom, but also, um, air and evaporation from the sides of these cloth pots. Uh, you also have something, there's something called air pruning that takes place. So as the roots of the plant grow to the edge of the pot, when they hit a plastic pot, they start spiraling around. And before you know it, you've got a root bound massive roots inside that plastic pot. And, and ultimately the spiraling of the roots ends up killing the plant. The plant commits suicide because of the way the roots start spiraling round and round. It eventually dies. But with the cloth pots, the roots go to the edge of the pot 
and the air causes them to stop growing. So the air is constantly pruning off the tips of the roots as they hit the pots. So you never have the spiraling. You have constant growth of roots and, and ultimately a much healthier plant as a result because of the way the roots are able to get the air. You know, they need air, right? There's this whole exchange of gas, not only above ground with plants, but below ground as well. So they're getting, they're having good, good access to oxygen. And, and I guess the, the extra bonus about the cloth pots, if you're tight for space, if you in the winter have no easy way to overwinter pots of, uh, empty pots for the winter, these cloth pots can easily be, you know, mushed down and folded up into a little ball and stuck somewhere for the winter and take up virtually no room at all. So, uh, yeah, there's my answer, Cheryl. I definitely recommend them. Wow. I wish the heck I'd been the inventor of that. It sounds like a marvelous <laughs> bit of work. Honest to Pete. I know. Yeah. There, I was given one as a, um, a gift from somebody and I gave it to my daughter who does her gardening on a balcony on the 14th floor in downtown Toronto. And she's loved it. It's worked really well for her. Uh, and she's, she's my, my person for testing that kind of stuff. Cause she's in a hot sunny balcony with tons of wind and she just has plants from wall to wall of her good sized uh, balcony. So she's a, she's a good, good tester for that stuff. That's great. Um, as you were speaking, I was just writing out a fault report, um, a suggestion for next week that we actually go through the uh, emails and number them. <laughs> and I want to make sure I want to make sure that I'm I'm handing you the right information here. The next email is uh, Frankie, from. Don't worry, I I um I have them all in front of me, and I oh, okay. do actually when I send them to you, there are numbers on the email. Did you know? And that? you know, I didn't include those. Uh, <laughs> there you are. Paul, Paul Judson <laughs> sent you a note. Is that the one in front of you now? Uh, about a raised, raised garden bed. It says, mm-hmm. Charlie, would you advise me where I could buy a raised garden kit, etc., mm-hmm. that could be tended to for vegetables, etc.? What types of soil material should I use in it? Be safe and God bless. That's from Paul in Scarborough. Yes. Scarborough. Raised garden beds, absolutely the best trend going, I think, particularly as we get older, because who wants to get down on your hands and knees to pull weeds and and pull carrots? Let's bring everything up closer to where we are. And that's where raised gardens can be very handy, not to mention you have full control of the soil, because when you build a raised garden bed, you then fill it with the soil that is going to work perfectly for whatever it is you want to grow. But the idea of a garden kit, a raised garden kit, um, all right. There's, there's multi, multi, uh, places out there. It just kind of depends what your budget is and how handy you are. Um, Lee Valley Tools, if you go to their website under gardening, they have tools, but also garden tools. They sell, um, corner brackets for raised garden beds. You would still need to buy the lumber and put the, the, um, the kits, you know, the actual gardens together. Uh, I'm a big fan of making my raised gardens approximately four feet across and then whatever length you want to go. Four feet is nice because you can reach in two feet from either side and you never have to walk inside. You never, you never plan to walk inside your raised garden beds. Make them a size that you can reach into from both sides comfortably and easily. So Lee Valley Tools for hardware. Um, here's a website and, and it's an interesting company as well. It's the Backyard Urban Farm Company. So Buffco. B as in Bob, U, F as in farm, 
C-O, buffco.ca. These, it's a family-run business. They've been around for ooh, at least 15, 20 years now in Toronto. That's exactly what they do. They build uh, raised garden beds uh, and, and they deliver and install and will and even maintain if you need them to. So Buffco is a, is a great GTA company, you know, local company. Great to support them if you can. So check them out, Paul. And then bottom line, uh, I've seen more and more every spring, though the stores aren't really open right now. But if you're uh, shopping online at the Costco's, the, you know, the Rona's, all the, the Home Depot's, all of those stores will have kits. Typically, there's going to be plastic raised garden tubs of one kind or another. So, Paul, like I said, it really depends what's your budget and how much gardening you were looking to do, how big of beds you wanted to make. Um, and, and again, how handy you are to be able to do some of this building yourself. So, so there it is. Those are my suggestions, but I would definitely, again, support raised gardening as, the, as a way to go. Yeah, for guys in my age range, it sounds perfect for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All righty. Uh, we have a, a note here from Diane Cavanaugh uh, regarding a honey locust tree. Man, oh, man. She says, I've got a 40-year-old tree, 80 feet tall, which mm-hmm. gets aphids every year. Seems to be affecting the output growth, not as vigorous. Will this damage the tree? And is there anything that can be done to prevent these aphids? Thanks, mm-hmm. Diane. Great question. Thank you, Diane. Don't want to spoil your, your uh, analysis and diagnosis there, but those are not aphids. <laughs> they are green. They do hop around. Uh, they are called the honey locust plant bug. They, uh, honey locusts are famous for getting those little green, uh, bugs. I, um, in my home in Richmond Hill, same thing, had a very massive 40 year old honey locust. And every spring it would get these little green bugs and you know they're there because when you walk underneath the tree and some of them start landing on you, they'll just drop right down under the tree and land on your clothing, etc. So they look like aphids, but they're not. Uh, here's how the honey locust plant bug works. It uh, overwinters beneath the bark of the tree. So right now those little bugs are still likely under the bark, though they're waking up because spring is in the air. They... Um, uh, uh, overwinter as eggs, I should say, beneath the bark. The eggs will hatch in the spring. So as the weather gets warmer, the eggs will hatch. Just as the leaf buds are starting to open, the little tiny baby honey locust plant bugs emerge and start chewing on the leaves. They eat all summer for about three months. They're just going to chow down on your honey locust. Then ultimately in the late summer, they're going to lay eggs and die. Eggs, of course, are laid under the bark, and mama honey locust plant bug dies after doing some pretty severe damage to the honey locust. And, and, and bottom line is the leaves do get all gnarly, and many of them go missing because the honey locust plant bug eats them. Well, here's what you're going to do. You are going to maintain the tree's vigor. You're going to do everything in your power to keep the, trees as ha- the tree as happy as possible. If we get into a drought situation, water deeply. Fertilize, deep root fertilize this spring or this summer once. Ensure that you're doing everything in your power to maintain the health of the tree. Very hard to spray such a large tree, but if it's real, the bugs are really bugging you, you can call in an arborist and an arborist can spray for you. Best time to spray is in the spring, just 
as and after those leaf buds are opening. So that's sometime in the next probably two to three weeks uh, that the honey locust will need to be sprayed. But like I said, generally we don't spray for this bug because the bug will not kill the tree, but it will weaken the tree. So you have to counteract that and ensure that the tree is as healthy and vigorous as possible so it can withstand the damage that the bugs are going to do. Okay. Hey, that's great. Uh, you know what? We're, we're uh, slamming up against our next break here. So let's do that. But just before we hand things off to uh, the folks back at the station for our commercials and uh, our favorite sponsors, uh, a bit of a reminder that you're listening to a show that's been recorded in advance of today because, of course, the COVID-19 situation. And Charlie Dobbin and I are in different locations. Joel is somewhere in Toronto recording all of this. But we do need your emails for next week, okay? So if you want to send Charlie an email, just address it to c.dobbin, that's D-O-B-B-I-N at mzmedia.com. And we'll return in just a couple of moments to answer a question that was sent in from Gail West, which really I think is quite clever. Uh, You'll enjoy this next little uh, letter we've got for you coming up next here on The Garden Show. Don't change stations just because the weather changes. Garden tips and advice all year round. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Hi, Charlie, once again, here on The Garden Show. I have a very interesting little note from Gail West. Not so much of a question, but a comment that I thought was really uh, quite clever. She says, uh, really enjoy your show on Saturday mornings. I've turned the downstairs shower into a mini greenhouse. And as they grow, I'm having to move them around the house May 24th. Seems so long to wait for me to plant them. I don't know what bulb she's referring to. Uh, The bulbs survived the winter in a cardboard box in the crawl space. Oh, the cannas. There you go. The cannas were amazing last year in the garden. And I had one canna pretoria, which grew over six feet tall. The pretoria bulbs aren't coming along as quickly as the orange cannas. And so she sent you some shots, and I hope you were able to see them okay, Charlie. I did. I know. It's it's really quite cute. And it's very creative, I think. Uh, you know, good on her. It's She's used her downstairs shower, which is one of those small stand-up corner showers. And in the photograph, you can see where there's like a little bench that you're supposed to sit on if you're having a shower. But she's filled the floor, the bench. The whole thing is just chock full of canna lilies growing in little pots. So she's got like a real nursery going on in her, uh, in her shower. But great idea. Use those showers. If you're not showering in it, it's, uh, it does provide the kind of environment that, uh, you know, like a greenhouse type environment and real easy to clean up afterwards. Yeah. A lot of humidity. Yeah, exactly. Easy to water. Good stuff. Yeah. And I noticed Gail even says, even during this pandemic, my plants keep growing and brighten my day. And I I think that's well said. You know, plants can be super, super supportive of any of our feelings and and just really literally brighten our days. Uh, The next note, Charlie, made me laugh. Uh, Honest to Pete, from Joy Lambert, who lives in Niagara on the lake. And uh, it's her first time asking questions. Ding-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling. Anyway, she says, Dear Gardeners, to you and I, thank you for continuing your program. I miss hearing the audience, though. I'm calling from the Banana Belt, and if Frank remembers Virgil, Ontario, I personally know Elder Lee. Now, Elder Lee was one of the characters I used on radio, and I honestly did this. I would use him as our 
traffic reporter take a 12-foot ladder in front of the station along with a microphone and do a traffic report with Elder on top of this ladder looking over the Burgoyne Bridge. <laughs> oh, look, we got three cars this morning. Oh, gee, just nutty. But anyway, thank you for for bringing that up because it just, yeah, as I say, it made me laugh. Like you, fun memories. Yeah, I bet. Anyway, okay, she says, my questions. Daffodils have come out with only leaves, no flowers. Do I dig now and throw them out? I received three hydrangeas. Where, how do I plant outside, and do I prune down first? Joy Lambert. There you go. From Niagara-on-the-Lake. Okay. Yeah. So, good questions. Daffodils coming out with only leaves, no flowers. Two things. One is be patient. You never know. They could still flower. Leaves do come up first with all of the spring flowering bulbs, and they're followed by flowers. So, I would be patient. Number two, it could be that those are young, small daffodils, uh, offsets from the original mother plants. They'll grow little daughter bulbs. And the daughter bulbs only grow leaves for a couple of years until they're mature enough to flower. So be patient, I, or I would be anyway, because I love daffodils. I would allow them to just slowly but surely do what they do. They, it's called naturalizing. The, the clump gets bigger and bigger, more and more daffodils every year, but a slow process of them growing up to be mature enough to have flowers on all of them. So no digging, no throwing out, if you ask me. And the three hydrangeas, I assume Joy probably received those like florist hydrangeas, hydrangeas in a pot with full flowers on them uh, at this time of year, very, very commonly given as gifts. So sure, you can plant them outside once we're frost free. Remember, they were grown in a greenhouse, so you do need to keep them in, indoors until the weather has turned and we're into some nicer weather. I would not prune them down as long as there are flowers on them and green leaves on them. Enjoy them. Uh, plant them in a spot where they're going to get preferably some morning sun and afternoon shade and preferably a fairly protected spot from the northwest wind. They may survive the winter, particularly where you live, Niagara-on-the-Lake. They may not. Uh, they may survive for a year or two and then not survive a winter in the future because they are not truly hardy plants. But then again, you live in the banana belt. So who knows? Maybe they'll survive at your place. Okay, yeah, right. Uh, I have a next question here from Linda Campbell, who who says, uh, it goes on said that I enjoy your gardening show, whether live Saturday morning or by podcast, as I take my walk around town. And uh, town would be Harriston, Ontario. Linda writes, and the subject is pruning apple and pear trees. She says, is it too late to prune apple and pear trees? Our daughter would have done it by now, but of course, she's unable to visit. So she, I will have to get at it. Is it, uh, but is it, is it not too late? So that's from Linda Campbell. What do you say? Uh, it's a very good question. Um, a lot of times people are looking at the spring weather and trying to decide when and how to prune things like apple and pear trees. If I were you, Linda, uh, on a dry day, so dry, sunny day, preferably, uh, yeah, literally no rain in the forecast for at least 24 hours, prune now. Um, it is best to prune the apples, the pears, just before the buds start to open. And just like buds would be the flower buds and the leaf buds. So just before any of those buds start to open, when you can still see the framework of the plant, is the best time to prune. I think that what happens is, is that we drive down the QEW down towards Grimsby and Niagara Falls and we see all those 
commercial orchards where there's thousands of apple trees and cherries and peaches and all those trees. And we see workers out there pruning them starting in February, sometimes even January. And we think, oh my gosh, I should be out there doing my pruning now. And no, for the homeowner, the hobby gardener, pruning now is more appropriate. The commercial grower has to start in the winter because they have thousands to prune. They can't wait until, you know, March or April. They have to get started in January, February. So no, no worries there. Do your pruning as you can get to it, but just try to do it before the buds actually open. Okay, Charlie, I see we're up to our next break here on The Garden Show. Charlie Dobbin and yours truly, Frank Proctor, will return in moments here on The Garden Show from Zoomer Radio. Fur and feathers and bugs of all size. There's more going on in the garden than you realize. Should small creatures become a big problem, then you've got The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Exclusively on Zoomer Radio. All right, you're listening to The Garden Show from Zoomer Radio. And Charlie, we have a note here from Sharon Coppin from Uxbridge. She says she's a regular listener, irregular gardener. Um, (laughs) Outside, so not inside. So keeping things alive inside, not her strongest suit. The question really is, uh, as it is not mid-April, and uh, her geraniums, have all been cut back three times, hopefully to keep them from getting leggy. How far back and where along the stems would you recommend to cut now? She says, I've got 14 cuttings from previous. They're all growing well in soil, so I'll not be starting anymore. Uh, there you go. Uh, good luck with your new place, by the way, in uh, in the Prince Edward County, Charlie, from Sharon. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Sharon. Um So good question. And Sharon did include some photographs of her geraniums. So obviously she's a geranium lover and we get a lot of calls from geranium growers and lovers in the fall on how to overwinter and keep their geraniums for the following spring. So that's exactly what Sharon's done. Now she's got so many little baby geraniums growing uh, and she's needing to cut them back because they're getting tall and spindly and leggy. And it's still only, uh, you know, we're, we're not uh, into May yet. So we, we have to wait till we're frost free before we can take these very tender geraniums outside into the garden. And once they're planted out there, we can ignore them. But inside there's a certain amount of maintenance. And I think Sharon's real question is, you know, how many times can she cut them back? She's not looking looking for more cuttings. She's just looking to keep them in good condition before they go outside. And you know what? In the photos you sent, Sharon, they look good to me. I, If you can maintain high light levels on those geraniums, you may not need to do any more cutting back. But if they start to get too tall and they start to get too leggy, then you, you're, you're right. Tip cuttings and you'll be throwing away the tips, <clears throat> but tip cuttings will be appropriate. How do you know where to cut? Well, if you look at the stem of a geranium, you'll see lines Literally, like little little lines, horizontal lines along the stems. Those are the nodes, and those are the spots from which buds will grow, or new leaves, or flowers, or anything can grow from those nodes, those little bumps where the lines are. So you are going to do your cutting, of course, just above a node or just above a line, 
And you're going to encourage growth to the outside of the plant. So you're going to look for bumps or new growth that's growing not to the inside, but to the outside so that the plant will be bushy, but uh, still have air, good air circulation and good sun penetration into the center of the plant. So, you know, I think that like in your photographs, your geraniums look really, really good. Uh, and light will make a difference, keeping them as short as possible before they can get outside. And you never know, we might be able to start sending some things out for little, you know, day trips soon, because that's what we do. We harden off our plants, sending them out for, you know, a couple hours one day into the shade, out of the no wind, and we start that toughening them up before they, they stay out for the entire summer. So thanks for that, Sharon. Okay. Do you know what? We've arrived at checkout time here on the Garden Show. <laughs> and I uh, want to say on behalf of everybody uh, here at the station, of course, uh, our great thanks to Emmy for being a special guest this morning. That's uh, Joel's daughter. And uh, yeah. it's now eight years old as this program is being aired. So thank you so much, uh, Emmy, for being part of the show. Charlie? Yeah. Happy birthday, Emmy. And thank you, Frank. Thank you. Thank you, Joel. Couldn't do any of this without your help and all our great email. So keep them coming. See you all again next week. This has been an exclusive podcast of The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Heard every Saturday morning at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.